Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at this point, I'll invite up our august speaker, Lee, that's you. Uh, At this point, if you don't know who Lee is, then I don't know what I can do for you. (laughs) But Lee, tell us something that we don't already know about you. Right. Okay. Um, Wasn't expecting that one. There are... There are many things you don't know about me, but not many of those I want you to know about me. <laughs> that wasn't the question. Um, this is all on tape as well. Oh, yes, that the first book you wrote, Lee? The first book I wrote was called On Mars Hill. I wrote it when I was 20. It was an evangelistic book based on two ways to live and various things like that. And it was designed to give to all my friends because they would only read a Christian book if I'd written it. Nobody's published it since. <laughs> it's a very limited, rare print run of 10 or something. What, what, what? Well, maybe I could persuade member, you know, the council to publish that again. Yeah, good. Why isn't it over? <laughs> so, well, it wouldn't be Jake without yet another Gatiss publication. Huh? We've got lots of copies of this. Why should we buy a book of 500-year-old sermons. Excellent. He's just throwing these up in the air. I'll just bat that one back. Okay, good. Well, um, I I have a copy here as well, Michael. Uh, The homilies um, were originally written in 1547, and they are an attempt to reform and renew the Church of England 
in biblical faith, which sounds like a good thing to do, doesn't it? To equip God's people to live God's word and reform and renew the church by giving ignorant pastors some biblical words to preach. So that's why you should be buying this book. <laughs> uh, but, but it's good for us for, to, to read uh, stuff to equip us. So there's some great material in here on the doctrine of scripture by Cranmer and on salvation. The doctrine of um, salvation is expounded in here and according to the 39 articles, we all ought to read it because it contains most wholesome doctrine um, that is m- more unpacked in the homilies than in, uh, in the articles themselves. Um, there's also some great stuff in here on sexuality and adultery and sexual sin and on contention and brawling. I mean, there are other things in here too, but those are the ones that I think are particularly relevant. I mean, you could almost just read out those two chapters on sexual sin and contention and brawling, and you'll see that what they were talking about 450 or so years ago is still very relevant. And the official Church of England view on those subjects is contained in the homilies because that is part of our official formularies. So if you want to know what the official Church of England view is on those things, you don't read Living in Love and Faith, you read the homilies. Unfortunately, the homily on sexual sin is not actually quoted in Living in Love and Faith at all, which I think is kind of an obvious um, gap there. So even if you only read it for those few homilies, there are 12 in there, um, it's well worth doing. I've updated all the these and thys and thous and... Um, labyrinthine complexity of the sentence structure and stuff like that made it easy to read nice big font <laughs> footnotes if you like that kind of thing um, but yeah obviously you should buy it so you're saying if on Sunday morning I forgot him on the preaching rodeo read one of the homilies that's what it's for to equip ignorant priests who couldn't <laughs> write their own sermons to have something good to say on a Sunday. I'll buy ten copies. <laughs> <laughs> to give so. to all your friends. Or... Yeah. And of course, it wouldn't be a Gators talk if I didn't stand like this all the evening. <laughs> With the to- so the books behind me. Yeah. Good. Are you going to do that? Uh, no. Can I have a free copy if I do? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. I want to know how you got George Whitfield to write the forward. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Forward by George Whitfield, and actually, if you look inside, the endorsements are also by Charles Simeon, 1759-1836, and Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who is one of my predecessors as Director of Church Society, who died in 1990. So uh, I got three people from the dead to endorse it. Um, you can ask me in private how I manage that without the use of a Ouija board. And um, what are you going to speak to us about this evening? Titus chapter 3. Which, Thank you. I mean, Eleanor read it so well, so I thought I might as well. Titus chapter 3 and why we ought to discipline ignorant ministers. Let's pray for you then. Thank you. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you for the way it speaks into the realities of our lives and our situations. We pray that you would open our eyes, eyes afresh now, and that you would open Lee's mouth to speak to us from your word. In your name, amen. 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 Thank you, Michael. That was entertaining as always. Uh, Please do have in front of you Titus chapter 3. I don't have a handout. I don't have any points on the the, the, uh, projector because everything you need is in front of you if you've got Titus chapter 3 there. I'm just going to work through Titus chapter 3. So if you're thinking, where's he up to? (laughs) I'm in there somewhere. So just find it in there. 
Um, for the last 10 years at Jake, um, I've been working through the pastoral epistles. So we worked our way through 2 Timothy over several years. Some of you were so junior that you were probably in the embryonic Anglican Evangelical Conference at that point. Um, and then we started on Titus. And today we reach the end with this reading from Titus chapter 3. Now the pastoral epistles, so-called, are obviously addressed to pastors, obviously, by a seasoned pastor and apostle, Paul. So they're peculiarly appropriate for us in a group which is either considering ministry or training for it or actively engaged in the early years of it. In Titus chapter 1, back in 2019, anybody here who was there in 2019? Do you remember we learned the remedy for the plague, which is undermining our churches? Not the coronavirus, which sadly came later, um, but the pandemic of poor pastoring, which upsets whole families and fills the church with untruth and ungodliness. And we saw then that um, when the church is unsettled and unhealthy and unfit, what it needs is godly teachers. And then last year, if you joined us online, anyone join us online last year? In Titus chapter uh, 2, we thought about what it means to be committed to God's cause in the world, rather than merely virtue signalling to the culture around us. We heard that healthy doctrine leads to healthy community life and that Christians, we're not motivated by guilt or by fear in the way that we live, as people often are by worldly campaigning, but we're motivated by the goodness and the grace of the gospel. And now in Titus chapter 3, the apostle to the Gentiles turns his attention particularly to how we are to interact with the world around us, especially the unbelieving world and the powers and authorities that have been placed above us. He often does this. Paul, you've probably noticed it, when he's, he speaks about the good news in his writing, he speaks about uh, how Jesus' followers should behave towards one another in the light of the good news, in their marriages, in families, in the workplace relationships that they have and then he goes on to write about how we should face those outside the church in our wider communities the gospel he preached was applied to both sets of relationships inside the church and families and outside so you can see that pattern in Ephesians 5 and 6 and in Colossians 3 and 4 and here again it is in Timothy uh, to Titus 2 and Titus 3. And here's what he says in Titus 3 in a nutshell. I know some of you like it in one sentence. Here's the sentence and then you can have a snooze. The, Paul says in Titus 3, the gospel demands that we be devoted to good deeds, not divisive and difficult to deal with. The gospel demands that we be devoted to good deeds, not divisive and difficult to deal with. That's the overall thrust of the chapter, I think. And this is what should inform Titus's pastoral strategy as a bishop 
or apostolic delegate in Crete, the island where he's based. We see at the end of uh, chapter 2 that Paul tells Titus to exhort and rebuke people in Crete with all authority and let nobody disregard him. And then chapter 3 verse 8 he says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. Insist on these things. So the trustworthy saying about the gospel of salvation makes an insistent, authoritative demand on those who are saved. It trains us, it motivates us, and it pushes us in certain directions. It doesn't save us and then leave us to just work out what to do next. And it doesn't save us and then urge us to follow the changing tides of worldly morality. Now, the gospel has its own insistent demands on our consciences related to God's unchanging law and his perfect design for the flourishing of his creation. What does it demand? Remember, it demands that we be devoted to good deeds. So verse 1, Titus is to remind the people to be submissive, obedient and ready for every good work. Verse 8, again, he insists that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then right at the end in verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. And if he says it three times, it must be important. He said the same thing. It is obvious that the gospel demands that we be devoted to good works, things which are excellent and profitable for people, verse 8, things that will help others and not be unfruitful, verse 14. So the gospel demands that we be devoted to good deeds, but it also demands, I said, that we not be divisive and difficult to deal with. Verse 1 again, remind them to be submissive, to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Verse 2, avoid quarrelling, be gentle. Verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, dissensions, quarrels. And if anyone behaves in the opposite way, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, you see again the main point's really clear. Paul says the gospel demands that we be devoted to good works not divisive or difficult to deal with. So if we want to be good Christians, devoted to good deeds in line with the demands of the gospel, I think that means two things particularly from this passage. First, gospel Christians should be good citizens. And second, gospel Christians should avoid those who are divisive. Those are the two main applications from this chapter, I think, for for the congregation that Titus is ministering to and also for Titus himself as a pastor. So let's look at those two points as Paul unpacks them. This is the rest of the talk in two points. I'm sorry, it's not good. It's, It's got two points. They are alliterated, but there's only two of them. So firstly, gospel Christians should be good citizens. Uh, Gospel Christians, evangelicals, 
we might say. We're gospel people, aren't we? Evangelion means gospel. We should be good citizens. Now, don't you don't need me to say um, that that isn't always the case, do you? Evangelicals have sometimes gained the reputation of being stroppy, subversive, seditious, insubordinate types of people. For some, being evangelical means that one is compelled to be disgruntled and disaffected all the time because we're right and everyone else is wrong. We are perfectly within our rights to be rude and dismissive about everybody else. But that isn't what Paul says we should be, even towards the pagan authorities whom God has set over us. As Gerald Bray says in his recent theological commentary on the pastoral epistles, there's no sign here that Paul thought the authorities might end up persecuting believers, which probably means that this letter was written before 64 AD, and the, all that trouble in Rome with Nero and the Great Fire and, and so on. So says Bray, Paul seemed to be more concerned that believers might use the excuse that they were citizens of the kingdom of heaven as a means of avoiding their responsibilities on earth. And he was determined to avoid a situation in which rebellion against the state could be seen as the natural corollary of the coming of Christ's kingdom. You know, the Jews in, in those days were infamous as revolutionaries against the Roman Empire, always rebelling and raging, as Calvin puts it. But gospel Christians are not meant to be always rebelling and raging. Now, don't get me wrong, we will always have something to say to the unbelieving powers and secular authorities. If the government is of the left, we will not be entirely happy. If the government is of the right, we will experience discomfort. If it's in the centre, it won't sit right with us because we're Christians. We're not conservatives or socialists or liberals or Democrats or Greens or whatever. We are something else entirely. We're Christians. And the gospel stands at odds with every political system and party in this present evil age, which is blind to the truth and in rebellion against Christ, whom we follow. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And Paul knows that too. Yeah, Paul knows Psalm 2, doesn't he? And yet still he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Someone check the Greek? It, it does say all people, doesn't it? Imagine if that is how we always spoke about our political leaders. If people said, evangelicals, 
Oh, they have a good reputation for being law-abiding citizens, deeply devoted to philanthropy and charity, always getting involved in local community projects, lovely people to be around. Imagine if that's how we were on Twitter and Facebook. No tweets at election time being rude about the candidates or how they voted in the Brexit referendum or how orange they are. Sorry, that's one for my American friends, particularly. Uh, no rush to judgment and condemnation when the government or somebody in it gets something wrong or does something questionable. No joining in with the crass chorus of criticism. Speak evil of no one. Even Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Be gentle even towards Keir Starmer and Diane Abbott. Show perfect courtesy, even to those we most strongly disagree with. But why? I mean, why should gospel Christians be good citizens of this calibre? Well, because of the gospel itself, of course. It's the gospel which demands that we be devoted to good works, not divisive and difficult to deal with. Because the gospel tells us, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Yes, the, the world is like that. And our leaders are like that. They are slaves to various passions and pleasures, are they not? Social media is naturally going to be full of malice and envy and hatred because the people on it are full of malice and envy and hatred. And it gives them pleasure to express that by laying into other people. But here's the thing we mustn't forget. We were like that too. We were like that too. The gospel is about being saved from that. Not saved so that we can carry on like that, but dress it up in religious fervour or don a dog collar to sanctify our self-righteousness. Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He didn't save us because we're so great, in distinction from all those reprehensible people who lead us. We got the leaders we deserved because we were just like them. But God saved us anyway, despite that, because he's good and kind and merciful. So maybe, maybe we should be like him in the way that we treat those who are just like we were. Because we're meant to be different now, though. That's what it's implying, isn't it? We're meant to be different. We don't join in with worldly ways of relating to the authorities because we've been saved, verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We've been washed We've been born again. We've been renewed. We've been changed 
by God the Holy Spirit, not because we were so wise and astute as to invite him in to our lives, but because despite our foolishness and our disobedience, Jesus chose to pour out his spirit on us. We're citizens of a different world, subjects of a different kingdom, not by birth or by works, but verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're right with God, with rights to a better life in eternity, entirely by God's grace. And this is why we can and must behave graciously and submissively towards the world. Because in and of ourselves, we know that we are no different from them. And yet, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So in Jesus Christ and by his spirit, we are, to, uh, to coin a phrase, we are living in mercy and grace, hence the name of our conference. We are living in mercy and grace. When we help others in sickness and in distress and in any kind of need, we are doing what humans were put here to do to emulate and imitate the practical kindness of our creator, even when the people we help may not deserve it. And that is our gospel, brothers and sisters. That is our gospel. That is why gospel Christians should be good citizens. However strong the temptations are for us to behave the way that the world behaves towards those we disagree with, and who are not like us. So that's my first point. Gospel Christians are not meant to be, uh, are meant to be devoted to, to good works and be good citizens. But secondly, Christians are not meant to be disobedient and difficult people either. Gospel Christians should avoid the divisive. That's my second point. Because the gospel teaches and trains us otherwise. Clearly, there were some people in Crete, where Titus is, who is ministering, who were just like that. We've heard about them already in this brief pastoral epistle. In chapter 1, verse 10, uh, we heard that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They were upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They were devoted to myths not to good works, but to myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. They were instead detestable, disobedient. You see, they hear that again, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's chapter one. And that's why, because those people, the false teachers are like that. That's why here in chapter three, verse nine, uh, Paul says, avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. That kind of stuff doesn't lead to good works. It leads to arguments and divisions. Now that word there for quarrels, uh, mache, 
is a word that speaks of hand-to-hand personal combat. You know, fisticuffs up close, get your knife out, that kind of stuff. And although the Christian life is often described in the Bible as a battle and a fight, this word here is never used positively in the Bible of the struggle that's demanded of us as believers. It's a different kind of struggle and fight. Indeed, Christians are always told to be the very opposite of this word. In the next verse, we're meant to be amachos, peaceable, not brawlers. Titus chapter 3, verse 2. So, to sort of allude to that Greek word, macho machismo is not a Christian virtue. It is something we should be giving a wide berth to. Stirring up division in that kind of way has always been something which God hates. Along with all kinds of Machiavellian ends justify the means approaches to things. There are six things that the Lord hates according to Proverbs 6. Seven that are an abomination to him. Can anyone tell me what they are? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord hates it. And the word for a divisive person in the Greek here is hereticos, from which we eventually, of course, get our word heretic. But heretic has a somewhat different meaning in English. In Titus, it doesn't mean someone who preaches a specific Christological or Trinitarian heresy or something or false doctrine necessarily, but someone who creates and fosters factions. Though possibly they do do that by means of unorthodox teaching or by pointless speculations and separations. It's related to the word for choosing. So a heretic is simply somebody who chooses to think differently from Jesus and the apostles. Someone who consciously divides themselves off from orthodox biblical doctrine. What does that mean? Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on this verse, says, If a person were to maintain that God is not triune and one, or that fornication is not a sin, he would be a heretic. So anti-Trinitarianism and teaching that sex outside of heterosexual marriage is an acceptable lifestyle for a Christian are equally heretical. But we should also add that divisiveness is a kind of heresy too. Those who are always stirring up divisions and rebellions by means of foolish controversies, personal attacks, majoring on the minors and general argumentativeness are also heretics in the Titus 3 sense. However orthodox their theological statements might look, They could be doctrinally impeccable on paper and irredeemably fractious 
in practice like the devil. It should get them nowhere with gospel Christians because gospel Christians should avoid the divisive. Forgive me if I mention this, but there's actually, as I said, a whole sermon given over to contention and brawling in the Anglican homilies, one of our foundational formularies in the Church of England. It says that among all kinds of contention, none is more hurtful than contention in matters of religion. In Paul's time, there was such contention and strife among the Corinthians, and at the moment, we have the same among us English. I told you these things were relevant to today. What does that contention look like? Well, the homily says, there are too many people in alehouses and on social media who delight to argue. Sorry, that, that's maybe a very modernised version. Uh, there are too many people who in alehouses or other places who delight to argue about certain questions, not so as to build people up in the truth, but for vain glory and for showing off their cunning. And so unsoberly do they reason and dispute that when neither party will give place to the other, they fall to criticism and contention, and sometimes from hot words to further improper behaviour. And the homily has excellent advice for those who are involved and engaged in contending today. It says, let us read the scripture that by reading it, we may be made better livers rather than more contentious disputers. If anything is necessary to be taught, reasoned or disputed, let us do it with all meekness, softness and gentleness. Yet the homily, it's not advocating unchallenged tolerance of all kinds of heresies and sins, is it? It is not ignorant of the need to draw lines. And it doesn't neglect to mention that brawlers and pickers of quarrels are among those who are numbered with the sexually immoral and idolatrous as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God according to the New Testament. So as I put it elsewhere, the bad breath of bolshiness is so unattractive and off-putting as the expression of our inward angsts and unsubmissive hearts that it can only please the devil who seeks to divide us. So how are we supposed to deal with these divisive heretics? What are we going to do? How should we respond to those who choose to teach an alternative to the apostles, an alternative gospel, an alternative way of living as a Christian? Well, the Apostle Paul says that church leaders such as Titus are called upon to admonish them, to warn them, to instruct them. They should encourage them to change their minds and repent of their false doctrine and warn them that if they do not do so, there have to be consequences. Which is why, according to the Book of Common Prayer, ministers in the Church of England are to be ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word. While bishops 
are to both privately and openly call upon and encourage others to do the same. So first there's got to be some kind of effort to reclaim the false teacher for the truth. Got to try that. He or she must be confronted with their error. They must be gently and calmly given the opportunity to correct any misunderstandings. They must be given the chance to change their mind or withdraw their heretical statements when they are shown to be contrary to what the Bible teaches. And this must be done with prayer. As Paul says elsewhere, if anyone opposes the gospel, the Lord's servant must gently instruct them in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? False teaching comes straight from the pit. So first we must avoid false teaching because it is dangerous, unprofitable and useless. And then secondly, we should admonish false teachers and pray for them in the hope that God will grant them repentance. But finally, what do we do if they don't repent, if they double down and become dedicated missionaries of error? Have nothing more to do with them, says Paul. Doesn't he? Isn't that what it says? Have nothing more to do with them. Now, at first, that can sound as if Paul is advocating even more dissension uh, and splitting up and division. But actually, that's the last thing on his mind. He doesn't want to cause schism and divisions in the church. He wants to preserve the unity of the church because there is only one thing that creates unity in the church, and that's the gospel. The gospel outlined in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, right here in Titus 3, the trustworthy saying. If we're not agreed on the gospel, we're not united at all. No gospel, no unity. Some people say that we must have unity at all costs, And that if it comes down to a choice between heresy or schism, we should choose heresy. I know there's a bishop who says that. If it comes to a choice between heresy or schism, choose heresy. doesn't matter what doctrine you believe, as long as we're all united in the same church and the same institution. As if the only heresy was thinking that there was such a thing as heresy. Now... As John Calvin says, we have to exercise moderation in not immediately making a heretic of everyone who does not agree with our opinions. For there are some matters, he says, on which Christians may disagree among themselves without being divided into sects, factions. But in the end, only the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. No institution can save us however united it might be. If there has to be a choice between eternal salvation or ecclesiastical unity, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Now, in Titus 3 here, the Bible tells us quite clearly that there is a time when separating from others is actually essential. 
Indeed, there are times when distancing ourselves from others because of what they believe or teach is actually commanded by God. I've written a whole book on the places in the Bible where it talks about dealing with false teaching and when we're supposed to do this. The Bible talks about this far more than you might think. Yes, 200 pages or so. Uh, And if there has to be some kind of division as a result of false teaching in the church, when Titus 3 verse 10 comes into play, it is the false teachers who have caused the division. False teaching is what divides. It is not a personal issue, this, about disliking the false teacher. No, personality clashes or differences of style should never be allowed to come between us. But false doctrine, well, false doctrine splits up churches, like adultery splits up families. And the person causing the split is the adulterer, the false teacher, not those who are seeking to be faithful to their vows. Even if it means the faithful Christian must leave a church or a denomination in the end because of false teaching, It is not institutional unity that matters. Ultimately, the only unity that counts between Christians is unity in the truth of the gospel. Doesn't matter if I'm in the same denomination as another Christian or not, whether we're part of the same institution or not. Makes no difference at all. The only unity that counts is unity in the truth of the gospel because Only the gospel will save. So that's why it's possible for us to have more in common with Bible-believing Christians in other denominations than we do with other Anglicans in the Church of England. Not all Anglicans, sorry, this might be a shock for some of you, okay, you ready? Not all Anglicans believe the gospel. Many Baptists and Presbyterians do. What ultimately matters is whether we believe the same gospel and are, Titus 3 verse 7, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not whether we use the same prayer book or wear the same robes or sing the same hymns. Those things may be important, but they are most definitely secondary matters, if not tertiary. But Paul says that we must regrettably find ourselves at odds with many in our denomination and in other denominations. That is, those who teach a false gospel. Those who preach a different way of salvation. Those who subtly, perhaps, change the good news of Jesus into a license for immorality or who reinterpret the Bible to blend in with the latest worldly trend or who forget that we're actually called to renounce worldly passions and live self-controlled and godly lives in this present age. Have nothing to do with them, says Paul. Separate yourselves from them. Distance yourselves from them. Because, verse 11 tells us why, you may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Again, that's not a personal attack. It's a theological description. 
Somebody who consciously and deliberately chooses to distance themselves from the teaching of the apostles, we must distance ourselves from them. And we can do that with a clear conscience. First, the heretical teacher must be given a chance to recant. Maybe they misspoke. Maybe they didn't realise. Maybe they never took Doctrine 101 or something. But eventually, there comes a point when all the admonishing is to no avail. Then it is incumbent upon us as gospel-believing Christians to have nothing to do with them. By refusing to repent, it is the false teacher himself or herself who has caused the division in the church. By teaching what is unprofitable, it is false teachers who cause disunity, not those who obey this injunction to separate from them. Now this is a very painful truth. We sometimes sing in, in that hymn, the church is one foundation, you know the hymn? The church is by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Because it's not pleasant. And it is utterly avoidable. If only false teachers would repent and believe the gospel. Which is kind of what we're all about, isn't it? Repent and believe the gospel. That's why we pray month after month after month in the words of the Book of Common Prayer that all they that do confess thy holy name may agree in the truth of thy holy word and therefore live in unity and godly love. Isn't the BCP great when you read it like that in, in these contexts? All they that do confess thy holy name may agree in the truth of thy holy word and therefore live in unity and godly love. But no amount of institutional unity or superficial love or outward conformity can patch up the bleeding wounds and spiritual hurts caused by false teaching. So then, like spiritual poison, we must avoid false teaching. With gentleness and with careful prayer, we must admonish those who teach falsely. And where they persist in their errors and refuse to repent with a heavy heart, avoid the false teachers themselves. Because gospel Christians should avoid the divisive. And church leaders, such as Bishop Titus, should take the lead in that spiritual safeguarding process. Now I wonder, does, does any of this have applications for us? <laughs> Is there false teaching in our midst that we must oppose and perhaps visibly distance ourselves from in some way? Primarily, I think there is an application here for our bishops, who in Anglican polity, Anglican ways of doing things, are the ones called to exercise discipline in the Church of England. We must pray for them as they seek to do this, if they seek to do this, because we know many people will react extremely negatively if and when bishops choose to discipline false teachers privately and openly, as they are called to do. One of our biggest problems, I think, in the Church of England today is the breakdown of doctrinal discipline at the national level. 
I mean, at local level, where parish ministers can act with some discretion and authority, discipline can be applied. But the admonitions to Timothy and Titus about silencing false teachers are not being followed on a larger stage by those with the responsibility for such discipline in Anglican polity. Article 26 of the 39 Articles says that in the visible church, the evil be ever mingled with the good. And yet that has never been an excuse to let false teaching go unchecked. The article continues, do you remember, that it appertaineth to the discipline of the church that inquiry be made of evil ministers and that they be accused by those that have knowledge of their offences. And finally, being found guilty by just judgment, be deposed. That doesn't mean there that we need to go actively sniffing out for heresy everywhere and meddling in other people's affairs like some sort of you know, modern-day inquisition. It means guarding the flock and responding to public challenges to the doctrine and practice of the church. However, it seems to me that those legally holding the power to do this are not doing it, or certainly not doing it as effectively as they probably need to. It's true that one cannot be disciplined for preaching the doctrine of the 39 Articles. That's a good thing. Uh, But one could, it seems, get away with preaching almost anything else these days. There could be several reasons for that, of course. The expense of heresy trials uh, and the financial choices that that involves. The PR nightmare and the fear of adverse publicity for any bishop who might actually do this. The difficulty of establishing a case, although I reckon that should be pretty easy now that many people put their sermons online. And they're on TV sometimes telling you what they think. Maybe a reason for this not happening is the uselessness of the Ecclesiastical Jurisdiction Measure 1963 and the exclusion of doctrinal matters from the procedures of the Clergy Discipline Measure 2003, which is said to be explicitly for disciplinary proceedings concerning matters not involving doctrine, ritual or ceremonial. Well, how are we supposed to discipline those things then? Or it just could be the fact that some bishops themselves hold erroneous views far short of the standard of doctrine set out in canon law. Canons A2 and A5, for example. Yet it seems to me that many bishops do not even use their soft power to preach the truth and publicly refute error, never mind engage in effective discipline of it. Given that heresy is, according to the Bible, gangrenous, pernicious and poisonous, why is it so unthinkable that it should be rooted out in the church today? Why are those to whom we have entrusted this task not keener to safeguard our spiritual health and well-being? Why? Because the failure of Episcopal discipline causes many, many problems for the rest of us. It creates ambiguity and uncertainty about our message and it makes people question whether we really believe it. 
It also means that lower authorities, lower than bishops and archbishops, yeah, lower authorities such as congregations or groups of ministers or deanery chapters will always feel somewhat impertinent and out of their official depth if they feel they have to deal with unchallenged heresy in the wider church. It's not technically their job to be doing that, to discipline people outside their parish, but it's the bishop and archbishop's jobs. I mean, even within the parish, there are actually limits to what can be done without Episcopal intervention, aren't there? For example, uh, as you well know, Canon B16 of notorious offenders not to be admitted to Holy Communion allows for somebody in malicious and open contention with his neighbours or other grave and open sin without repentance to be refused the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, especially in case of grave and immediate scandal to the congregation. And that's good. That would enable us to deal with some situations akin to those envisaged in Titus chapter 3. But the minister is not supposed to act on this more than once without referring the whole thing to his bishop, canonically. When bishops then fail to act against scandalous individuals or ministers or even fellow bishops who deny the faith and propagate scandalous heresies, not only is that frustrating for those who have to sit by in legal impotence, but it undermines the credibility of Episcopal polity itself and brings the faith into disrepute. And the problem is, I suppose, it's just all too easy to entrust these things to you know, difficult decisions to, to systems and processes rather than taking personal charge to prevent false teachers from having positions of responsibility and teaching authority. And yet, isn't that like a core duty of our bishops? And we have a duty and a right to complain if it's not being done in line with our publicly acknowledged standards of doctrine and morality. Bishops, you know, are often concerned with jurisdiction, aren't they? We're guarding their diocese from outside interference or administrative infringement. But in reality, many of them do not patrol their patches spiritually. And so they begin to resemble the anarchy of the Wild West, where might makes right, and any gunslinger with a blog or a pulpit can terrorise congregations with their calamitous errors. But what can junior Anglicans do, eh? What can junior Anglicans do in the midst of all this chaos? Well, whatever actions we do take, and of course you could read Fight Validly and find out more, about what you could be doing. Whatever we do, we need to ensure that we are doing things that are clearly and evidently linked to the scriptural imperatives that we've seen in places like Titus 3. That is, if we think it is necessary, after appropriate investigation, careful thought, prayer and godly counsel, to take a particular line of action with regards to false teaching and false teachers... It is vital that we persuasively demonstrate how and why we feel that action is demanded of us by God's word. We must communicate that in a courteous and sober-minded way with gentleness and humility 
remembering that sometimes not everyone who disagrees with us is an enemy. As Paul said, let your reasonableness be known to everybody, which means, I think, reacting in a proportional way to these things. Not writing off every archdeacon because of the actions of one or the whole house of bishops because of the teaching of a minority. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarrelling, be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Precipitous and bullish divisiveness for the sake of personal glory or reputation is not only unattractive, but it actually exposes our own warped and sinful motivations for everybody to see. That is not the way to promote and advance the gospel of Jesus, who gave himself up for us. Paul then ends his letter as you see, if you're following along, by saying, greet those who love us in the faith. Those who are living in love and faith can rejoice in their fellowship, even when they can't meet together physically. That's a truth we've rejoiced in, isn't it, over the last year or so, when so much has been on Zoom instead of in person. But one day, we will all meet together in the new creation to worship and serve the Lord Jesus, if In this world, we live in the mercy and grace of his gospel, which demands that we be devoted to good works, not divisive and difficult to deal with. Let's pray that we will be in that number when the saints go marching in. Let's pray. Almighty God, who gives victory to his faithful people, Not by might, nor by power, but by your Holy Spirit. Grant in your mercy that we may not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and to fight valiantly against sin, the world and the devil, contending for the gospel as his faithful soldiers and servants until the end of our lives. For we ask in the name of Jesus, who conquered the powers of darkness and gave himself up to rescue us from this present evil age. Amen.